Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 13. The Open Window. Antony's first thought was that Cayley had hidden something. Something, perhaps, which he had found by the body. And—but that was absurd. In the time at his disposal he could have done no more than to put it away in a drawer, where it would be much more open to discovery by Antony than if he had kept it in his pocket. In any case, he would have removed it by this time, and hidden it in some more secret place. Besides, why in this case bother about shutting the door? Bill pulled open a drawer in the chest, and looked inside. "'Is it any good going through these, do you think?' he asked. Antony looked over his shoulder. "'Why did he keep clothes here at all?' he asked. "'Did he ever change down here?' "'My dear Tony, he had more clothes than anybody in the world. He just kept them here in case they might be useful, I expect. When you and I go from London to the country we carry our clothes about with us. Mark never did. In his flat in London he had everything all over again which he has here. It was a hobby with him, collecting clothes. If he'd had half a dozen houses, they would all have been full of a complete gentleman's town and country outfit. I see. Of course, it might be useful sometimes, when he was busy in the next room, not to have to go upstairs for a handkerchief or a more comfortable coat. I see, yes. He was walking round the room as he answered, 
and he was lifting the top of the linen basket, which stood near the wash-basin, and glanced in. "'He seems to have come in here for a collar lately.' Bill peered in. There was one collar at the bottom of the basket. "'Yes, I dare say he would,' he agreed. "'If he suddenly found that the one he was wearing was uncomfortable, or a little bit dirty or something. He was very finicking.' Antony leant over and picked it out. "'It must have been uncomfortable this time,' he said, after examining it carefully. "'It couldn't very well be cleaner.' He dropped it back again. "'Anyway, he did come in here sometimes?' "'Oh, yes, rather.' "'Yes, but what did Cayley come in for so secretly?' "'What did he want to shut the door for?' said Bill. "'That's what I don't understand. You couldn't have seen him anyhow.' "'No. So it follows that I might have heard him. He was going to do something which he didn't want me to hear.' "'By Jove, that's it!' said Bill eagerly. "'Yes, but what?' Bill frowned hopefully to himself but no inspiration came. "'Well, let's have some air, anyway,' he said at last, exhausted by the effort, and he went to the window, opened it, and looked out. Then, struck by an idea, he turned back to Antony and said, "'Do you think I had better go up to the pond and make sure that they're still at it? Because—' He broke off suddenly at the sight of Antony's face. "'Oh, idiot! Idiot!' Antony cried. "'Oh, most super-excellent of Watsons! Oh, you lamb, you blessing! Oh, Gillingham, you incomparable ass!' "'What on earth?' "'The window! The window!' cried Antony, pointing to it. Bill turned back to the window, expecting it to say something. As it said nothing, he looked at Antony again. "'He was opening the window!' cried Antony. "'Who?' Cayley, of course. Very gravely and slowly he expounded. He came in here in order to open the window. He shut the door so that I shouldn't hear him open the window. He opened the window. I came in here and found the window open. I said, This window is open. My amazing powers of analysis tell me that the murderer must have escaped by this window. Oh, said Cayley, raising his eyebrows. "'Well,' said he, "'I suppose you must be right,' said I proudly. "'I am, for the window is open.' I said, "'Oh, you incomparable ass!' He understood now. It explained so much that had been puzzling him. He tried to put himself in Cayley's place. Cayley, when Antony had first discovered him, hammering at the door and crying, "'Let me in!' Whatever had happened inside the office— Whoever had killed Robert, Cayley knew all about it, and knew that Mark was not inside, and had not escaped by the window. But it was necessary to Cayley's plans—to Mark's plans if they were acting in concert—that he should be thought to have escaped. At some time, then, while he was hammering, the key in his pocket, at the locked door, he must suddenly have remembered, with what a shock, that a mistake had been made. A window had not been left open. Probably it would just have been a horrible doubt at first. Was the office window open? Surely it was open. Was it? Would he have time now to unlock the door, slip in, open the French windows, and slip out again? No. 
At any moment the servants might come. It was too risky. Fatal if he were discovered. But servants were stupid. He could get the window safely open while they were crowding round the body. They wouldn't notice. He could do it somehow. And then Antony's sudden appearance. Here was a complication. And Antony suggesting that they should try the window. Why, the window was just what he wanted to avoid. No wonder he had seemed dazed at first. Ah, and here at last was the explanation why they had gone the longest way round and yet run. It was Cayley's only chance of getting a start on Antony, of getting to the windows first, of working them open somehow before Antony caught him up. Even if that were impossible, he must get there first, just to make sure. Perhaps they were open. He must get away from Antony and see. And if they were shut, hopelessly shut, then he must have a moment to himself, a moment in which to think of some other plan, and avoid the ruin which seemed so suddenly to be threatening. So he had run. But Antony had kept up with him. They had broken in the window together and gone into the office. But Cayley was not done yet. There was the dressing-room window. But quietly, quietly, Antony mustn't hear. And Antony didn't hear. Indeed, he had played up to Cayley splendidly. Not only had he called attention to the open window, but he had carefully explained to Cayley why Mark had chosen this particular window in preference to the office window. And Cayley had agreed that probably that was the reason. How he must have chuckled to himself! But he was still a little afraid. Afraid that Antony would examine the shrubbery. Why? Obviously because there was no trace of anyone having broken through the shrubbery. No doubt Cayley had provided the necessary traces since, and had helped the inspector to find them. Had he even gone as far as footmarks in Mark's shoes? But the ground was very hard. Perhaps footmarks were not necessary. Antony smiled as he thought of the big Cayley trying to squeeze into the dapper little Mark's shoes. Cayley must have been glad that footmarks were not necessary. No. The open window was enough. The open window and a broken twig or two. But quietly, quietly, Antony mustn't hear. And Antony had not heard. But he had seen a shadow on the wall. They were outside on the lawn again now, Bill and Antony and Bill was listening open-mouthed to his friend's theory of yesterday's happenings. It fitted in, it explained things, but it did not get them any further. It only gave them another mystery to solve. "'What's that?' said Antony. "'Mark! Where's Mark? If he never went into the office at all, then where is he now?' "'I don't say that he never went into the office. In fact, he must have gone. Elsie heard him.' He stopped and repeated slowly. She heard him. At least she says she did. But if he was there, he came out again by the door. But where does that lead you? Where it led Mark. The passage. Do you mean that he's been hiding there all the time? Antony was silent until Bill had repeated this question, and then, with an effort, he came out of his thoughts and answered him. I don't know. But look here. Here's a possible explanation. I don't know if it is the right one. I don't know, Bill. 
I'm rather frightened. Frightened of what may have happened, or of what may be going to happen. However, here is an explanation. See if you can find any fault with it. With his legs stretched out and his hands deep in his pockets, he lay back on the garden seat, looking up to the blue summer sky above him, and just as if he saw up there the events of yesterday being enacted over again, he described them slowly to Bill as they happened. We'll begin at the moment when Mark shoots Robert. Call it an accident. Probably it was. Mark would say it was, anyhow. He is in a panic, naturally, but he doesn't lock the door and run away. For one thing, the key is on the outside of the door. For another, he is not quite such a fool as that. But he is in a horrible position. He is known to be on bad terms with his brother. He has just uttered some foolish threat to him, which may possibly have been overheard. What is he to do? He does the natural thing, the thing which Mark would always do in such circumstances. He consults Cayley, the invaluable, inevitable Cayley. Cayley is just outside. Cayley must have heard the shot. Cayley will tell him what to do. He opens the door just as Cayley is coming to see what is the matter. He explains rapidly. What's to be done, Kay? What's to be done? It was an accident. I swear it was an accident. He threatened me. He would have shot me if I hadn't. Think of something quick. Cayley has thought of something. Leave it to me, he says. You clear out altogether. I shot him if you like. I'll do all the explaining. Get away. Hide. Nobody saw you go in. Into the passage, quick. I'll come to you there as soon as I can. Good Cayley, faithful Cayley. Mark's courage comes back. Cayley will explain all right. Cayley will tell the servants that it was an accident. He will ring up the police. Nobody will suspect Cayley. Cayley has no quarrel with Robert. And then Cayley will come into the passage and tell him that it is all right and Mark will go out by the other end, and saunter slowly back to the house. He will be told the news by one of the servants. Robert accidentally shot? Good heavens! So greatly reassured, Mark goes into the library, and Cayley goes to the door of the office and locks it. And then he bangs on the door and shouts, Let me in! Antony was silent. Bill looked at him and shook his head. "'Yes, Tony, but that doesn't make sense. "'What's the point of Cayley behaving like that?' "'Antony shrugged his shoulders without answering. "'And what has happened to Mark since?' "'Antony shrugged his shoulders again. "'Well, the sooner we go into that passage, the better,' said Bill. "'You're ready to go?' "'Quite,' said Bill, surprised. "'You're quite ready for what we may find?' "'You're being dashed mysterious, old boy.' "'I know I am.' He gave a little laugh and went on. "'Perhaps I'm being an ass. Just a melodramatic ass. Well, I hope I am.' He looked at his watch. "'It's safe, isn't it? They're still busy at the pond?' "'We'd better make certain. Could you be a sleuth-hound, Bill? One of those that travel on their stomachs very noiselessly? I mean, could you get near enough to the pond to make sure that Cayley is still there?' without letting him see you? "'Rather!' he got up eagerly. "'You wait!' Antony's head shot up suddenly. "'Why, that was what Mark said. 
he cried. Mark? Yes. What else you heard him say? Oh, that. Yes. I suppose she couldn't have made a mistake, Bill? She did hear him? She couldn't have mistaken his voice, if that's what you mean. Oh? Mark had an extraordinary, characteristic voice. Oh? Rather high-pitched, you know. Well, one can't explain, but— Yes? Well, rather like this, you know, or even more so, if anything. He rattled these words off in Mark's rather monotonous, high-pitched voice, then laughed and added in his natural voice, I say, that was really rather good. Antony nodded quickly. That was like it? he said. Exactly. Yes. He got up and squeezed Bill's arm. Well, just go and see about Cayley, and then we'll get moving. I shall be in the library. Right. Bill nodded and walked off in the direction of the pond. This was glorious fun. This was life. The immediate program could hardly be better. First of all, he was going to stalk Cayley. There was a little copse above the level of the pond, and about a hundred yards away from it. He would come into this from the back, creep cautiously through it, taking care that no twigs cracked, and then, drawing himself on his stomach to the edge, peer down upon the scene below him. People were always doing that sort of thing in books, and he had been filled with a hopeless envy of them. Well, now he was actually going to do it himself. What fun! And then, when he had got back unobserved to the house and reported to Antony, they were going to explore the secret passage. Again, what fun! Unfortunately, there seemed to be no chance of buried treasure. But there might be buried clues. Even if you found nothing, you couldn't get away from the fact that a secret passage was a secret passage, and anything might happen in it. But even that wasn't the end of this exciting day. They were going to watch the pond that night. They were going to watch Cayley under the moonlight. Watch him as he threw into the silence of the pond. What? The revolver? Well, anyhow, they were going to watch him. What fun! To Antony, who was older and realized into what deep waters they were getting, it did not seem fun. But it was amazingly interesting. He saw so much, and yet somehow— it was all out of focus. It was like looking at an opal and discovering with every movement of it some new color, some new gleam of light reflected, and yet never really seeing the opal as a whole. He was too near it, or too far away. He strained his eyes, and he relaxed his eyes. It was no good. His brain could not get hold of it. But there were moments when he almost had it and then turned away from it. He had seen more of life than Bill, but he had never seen murder before. And this which was in his mind now, and to which he was afraid to listen, was not just the hot-blooded killing which any man may come to if he lose control. It was something much more horrible, too horrible to be true. Then let him look again for the truth. He looked again, but it was all out of focus. "'I will not look again,' he said aloud, as he began to walk towards the house. "'Not yet, anyway.' He would go on collecting facts and impressions. Perhaps the one fact would come along by itself, 
which would make everything clear. End of chapter 13This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 14. Mr. Beverly Qualifies for the Stage. Bill had come back, and had reported, rather breathlessly, that Cayley was still at the pond. "'But I don't think they're getting much up except mud,' he said. "'I ran most of the way back so as to give us as much time as possible.' Antony nodded. "'Well, come along, then,' he said. "'The sooner the quicker.' They stood in front of the row of sermons. Antony took down the Reverend Theodore Usher's famous volume, and felt for the spring. Bill pulled. The shelves swung open towards them. "'By Jove!' said Bill. "'It is a narrow way.' There was an opening about a yard square in front of them, which had something the look of a brick fireplace, a fireplace raised about two feet from the ground. But save for one row of bricks in front, the floor of it was emptiness. Antony took a torch from his pocket and flashed it down into the blackness. "'Look!' he whispered to the eager Bill. "'The steps begin down there.' Six feet down.' He flashed his torch up again. There was a handhold of iron, a sort of large iron staple, in the bricks in front of them. "'You swing off from there,' said Bill. "'At least, I suppose you do. I wonder how Ruth Norris liked doing it.' Cayley helped her, I should think. "'It's funny.' "'Shall I go first? asked Bill, obviously longing to do so. Antony shook his head with a smile. I think I will, if you don't mind very much, Bill. Just in case. In case of what? Well, in case. Bill had to be content with that, but he was too much excited to wonder what Antony meant. Right-o, he said. Go on. Well, we'll just make sure we can get back again first. It really wouldn't be fair on the inspector if we got stuck down here for the rest of our lives. He's got enough to do trying to find Mark, but if he has to find you and me as well— We can always get out at the other end. Well, we're not certain yet. I think I'd better just go down and back. I promise faithfully not to explore. Right you are. Antony sat down on the ledge of bricks, swung his feet over, and sat there for a moment, his legs dangling. He flashed his torch into the darkness again so as to make sure where the steps began, then returned it to his pocket, seized the staple in front of him, and swung himself down. His feet touched the steps beneath him, and he let go. "'Is it all right?' said Bill anxiously. "'All right. I'll just go down to the bottom of the steps and back. Stay there.' The light shone down by his feet. His head began to disappear. For a little while Bill, craning down the opening, could still see faint splashes of light, and could hear slow, uncertain footsteps. For a little longer he could fancy that he saw and heard them. Then he was alone. Well, not quite alone. 
there was a sudden voice in the hall outside. "'Good Lord!' said Bill, turning round with a start. "'Cayley!' If he was not so quick in thought as Antony, he was quick enough in action. Thought was not demanded now. To close the secret door safely but noiselessly, to make sure that the books were in the right places, to move away to another row of shelves, so as to be discovered deep in badminton, or Baedeker, or whomever the kind gods should send to his aid, the difficulty was not to decide what to do, but to do all this in five seconds rather than in six. "'Ah, there you are,' said Cayley from the doorway. "'Hello,' said Bill in surprise, looking up from the fourth volume of The Life and Works of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. "'Have they finished?' "'Finished what?' "'The pond,' said Bill, wondering why he was reading Coleridge on such a fine afternoon. Desperately he tried to think of a good reason. "'Verifying a quotation. An argument with Antony. That would do. But what quotation?' "'Oh, no. They're still at it. Where's Gillingham?' "'The Ancient Mariner. Water, water everywhere.' Or was that something else? And where was Gillingham? Water, water everywhere. Tony? Oh, he's about somewhere. We're just going down to the village. They aren't finding anything at the pond, are they? No. But they like doing it. Something off their minds when they can say they've done it. Bill, deep in his book again, looked up and said, Yes, and went back to it again. He was just getting to the place. "'What's the book?' said Cayley, coming up to him. Out of the corner of his eye he glanced at the shelf of sermons as he came. Bill saw that glance and wondered. Was there anything there to give away the secret? "'I was just looking up a quotation,' he drawled. "'Tony and I had a bet about it. You know that thing about, er, water, water everywhere, and, er, not a drop to drink?' But what on earth, he wondered to himself, were they betting about? Nor any drop to drink, to be accurate. Bill looked at him in surprise. Then a happy smile came on his face. Quite sure? he said. Of course. Then you've saved me a lot of trouble. That's what the bet was about. He closed the book with a slam, put it back in its shelf, and began to feel for his pipe and tobacco. I was a fool to bet with Tony, he added. He always knows that sort of thing. So far, so good. But here was Cayley, still in the library, and there was Antony, all unsuspecting in the passage. When Antony came back, he would not be surprised to find the door closed, because the whole object of his going had been to see if he could open it easily from the inside. At any moment, then, the bookshelf might swing back and show Antony's head in the gap. A nice surprise for Cayley. "'Come with us?' he said casually as he struck a match. He pulled vigorously at the flame as he waited for the answer, hoping to hide his anxiety, for if Cayley assented he was done. "'I've got to go into Stanton.' Bill blew out a great cloud of smoke, with an expiration which covered also a heartfelt sigh of relief. "'Oh, a pity. You're driving, I suppose?' "'Yes, the car will be here directly.' 
there's a letter I must write first. He sat down at a writing table and took out a sheet of notepaper. He was facing the secret door. If it opened, he would see it. At any moment now, it might open. Bill dropped into a chair and thought. Antony must be warned. Obviously. But how? How did one signal to anybody? By code. Morse code. Did Antony know it? Did Bill know it himself, if it came to that? He had picked up a bit in the army, not enough to send a message, of course. But a message was impossible anyhow. Cayley could hear him tapping it out. It wouldn't do to send more than a single letter. What letters did he know? And what letter would convey anything to Antony? He pulled at his pipe, his eyes wandering from Cayley at his desk to the Reverend Theodore Usher in his shelf. What letter? C. For Cayley. Would Antony understand? Probably not. But it was just worth trying. What was C? Long, short, long, short? Umpty iddy, umpty iddy? Was that right? C. Yes, that was C. He was sure of that. C. Umpty iddy, umpty iddy. Hands in pockets, he got up and wandered across the room, humming vaguely to himself, the picture of a man waiting for another man, as it might be, his friend Gillingham, to come in and take him away for a walk or something. He wandered across to the books at the back of Cayley, and began to tap absent-mindedly on the shelves as he looked at the titles. Umpty iddy, umpty iddy. Not that it was much like that at first. He couldn't get the rhythm of it. Umpty iddy, umpty iddy. That was better. He was back at Samuel Taylor Coleridge now. Antony would begin to hear him soon. Umpty iddy, umpty iddy. Just the aimless tapping of a man who is wondering what book he will take out with him to read on the lawn. Would Antony hear? One always heard the man in the next flat knocking out his pipe. Would Antony understand? Umpty iddy, umpty iddy. See for Cayley, Antony. Cayley's here. For God's sake, wait. Good Lord! Sermons! said Bill with a loud laugh. Umpty iddy, umpty iddy. Ever read em, Cayley? What? Cayley looked up suddenly. Bill's back moved slowly along, his fingers beating a tattoo on the shelves as he walked. Er, no, said Cayley, with a little laugh. An awkward, uncomfortable little laugh, it seemed to Bill. Nor do I. He was past the sermons now, past the secret door, but still tapping in the same aimless way. Oh, for God's sake, sit down, burst out Cayley, or go outside if you want to walk about. Bill turned round in astonishment. Hello, what's the matter? Cayley was slightly ashamed of his outburst. Sorry, Bill, he apologized. My nerves are on edge. Your constant tapping and fidgeting about. Tapping? 
said Bill, with an air of complete surprise. Tapping on the shelves, and humming. Sorry, it got on my nerves. My dear old chap, I'm awfully sorry. I'll go out in the hall. It's all right, said Cayley, and went on with his letter. Bill sat down in his chair again. Had Antony understood? Well, anyhow, there was nothing to do now but wait for Cayley to go. And if you ask me, said Bill to himself, much pleased, I ought to be on the stage. That's where I ought to be, the complete actor. A minute. Two minutes. Three minutes. Five minutes. It was safe now. Antony had guessed. "'Is the car there?' asked Cayley as he sealed up his letter. Bill strolled into the hall, called back yes, and went out to talk to the chauffeur. Cayley joined him, and they stood there for a moment. "'Hello,' said a pleasant voice behind them. They turned round and saw Antony. "'Sorry to keep you waiting, Bill.' With a tremendous effort Bill restrained his feelings, and said casually enough that it was all right. "'Well, I must be off,' said Cayley. "'You're going down to the village?' "'That's the idea.' "'I wonder if you'd take this letter to Jallins for me?' "'Of course.' "'Thanks very much. Well, I shall see you later.' He nodded and got into the car. As soon as they were alone— Bill turned eagerly to his friend. "'Well?' he said excitedly. "'Come into the library.' They went in, and Tony sank down into a chair. "'You must give me a moment,' he panted. "'I've been running.' "'Running?' "'Well, of course. How do you think I got back here?' "'You don't mean you went out at the other end?' Antony nodded. "'I say, did you hear me tapping?' I did indeed. Bill, you're a genius. Bill blushed. I knew you'd understand, he said. You guessed that I meant Cayley. I did. It was the least I could do after you'd been so brilliant. You must have had rather an exciting time. Exciting? Good Lord, I should think it was. Tell me about it. As modestly as possible. Mr. Beverley explained his qualifications for a life on the stage. "'Good man,' said Antony at the end of it. "'You are the most perfect Watson that ever lived. "'Bill, my lad,' he went on dramatically, rising and taking Bill's hand in both of his, "'there is nothing that you and I could not accomplish together, if we gave our minds to it. "'Silly old ass. "'That's what you always say when I'm being serious.' Well, anyway, thanks awfully. You really saved us this time. Were you coming back? Yes, at least I think I was. I was just wondering, when I heard your tapping. The fact of the door being shut was rather surprising. Of course, the whole idea was to see if it could be opened easily from the other side, but I felt somehow that you wouldn't shut it till the last possible moment, until you saw me coming back. Well, then I heard the taps, and I knew it must mean something, so I sat tight. Then, when C began to come along, I said, Cayley, by Jove! Bright, aren't I? And I simply haired back to the other end of the passage for all I was worth. 
and haired back again, because I thought you might be getting rather involved in explanations, about where I was and so on. You didn't see Mark, then? No, nor his— No, I didn't see anything. Nor what? Antony was silent for a moment. I didn't see anything, Bill, or rather, I did see something. I saw a door in the wall, a cupboard, and it's locked. So if there's anything we want to find, that's where it is. Could Mark be hiding there? I called through the keyhole in a whisper, Mark, are you there? He would have thought it was Cayley. There was no answer. Well, let's go down and try again. We might be able to get the door open. Antony shook his head. Aren't I going at all? said Bill, in great disappointment. When Antony spoke, it was to ask another question. Can Cayley drive a car? Yes, of course. Why? Then he might easily drop the chauffeur at his lodge, and go off to Stanton or wherever he wanted on his own? I suppose so, if he wanted to. Yes. Antony got up. Well, look here. As we said we were going to the village, and as we promised to leave that letter, I almost think we'd better do it. Oh! Oh, very well. Jalins. What were you telling me about that? Oh, yes, the widow Norbury. That's right. Cayley used to be rather keen on the daughter. The letter's for her. Yes, well, let's take it, just to be on the safe side. "'Am I going to be done out of that secret passage altogether?' asked Bill fretfully. "'There's nothing to see. Really, I promise you. "'You're very mysterious. What's upset you? "'You did see something down there. I'm certain of it.' "'I did, and I've told you about it.' "'No, you haven't. You only told me about the door in the wall.' "'That's it, Bill. And it's locked.' and I'm frightened of what's behind it. But then, we shall never know what's there if we aren't going to look. We shall know, tonight, said Antony, taking Bill's arm and leading him to the hall, when we watch our dear friend Cayley dropping it into the pond. End of chapter 14「ここまでのお相which sloped gently downwards toward Jalins. Antony was silent, and since it is difficult to keep up a conversation with a silent man for any length of time, Bill had dropped into silence, too. Or rather, he hummed to himself, hit at thistles in the grass with his stick, and made uncomfortable noises with his pipe. But he noticed that his companion kept looking back over his shoulder, almost as if he wanted to remember for a future occasion the way by which they were coming. Yet there was no difficulty about it. 
for they remained all the time in view of the road, and the belt of trees above the long park wall which bordered its further side stood out clearly against the sky. Antony, who had just looked round again, turned back with a smile. "'What's the joke?' said Bill, glad of a more social atmosphere. "'Cayley, didn't you see?' "'See what?' "'The car, going past on the road there. "'So that's what you were looking for. "'You've got jolly good eyes, my boy, "'if you recognize the car at this distance "'after only seeing it twice.' "'Well, I have got jolly good eyes.' "'I thought he was going to Stanton.' "'He hoped you'd think so, obviously.' "'Then where is he going?' "'The library, probably, to consult our friend Usher, "'after making quite sure that his friends Beverly and Gillingham "'really were going to Jallins, as they said.' "'Bill stopped in the middle of the path. "'I say, do you think so?' "'Antony shrugged his shoulders. "'I shouldn't be surprised. "'We must be devilishly inconvenient for him, hanging about the house.' Any moment he can get when we're definitely somewhere else must be very useful to him. Useful for what? Well, useful for his nerves, if nothing else. We know he's mixed up in this business. We know he's hiding a secret or two. Even if he doesn't suspect that we're on his tracks, he must feel that at any moment we might stumble on something. Bill gave a grunt of assent, and they went slowly on again. "'What about tonight?' he said, after a lengthy blow at his pipe. "'Try a piece of grass,' said Antony, offering it to him. Bill pushed it through the mouthpiece, blew again, said, "'That's better,' and returned the pipe to his pocket. "'How are we going to get out without Cayley knowing?' "'Well, that wants thinking over. It's going to be difficult. I wish we were sleeping at the inn.' Is this Miss Norbury by any chance? Bill looked up quickly. They were close to Jallan's now, an old thatched farmhouse which, after centuries of sleep, had woken up to a new world, and had forthwith sprouted wings. Wings, however, of so discreet a growth that they had not brought with them any obvious change of character, and Jallan's, even with a bathroom, was still Jallan's, to the outward view at any rate. Inside, it was more clearly Mrs. Norbury's. "'Yes, Angela Norbury,' murmured Bill. "'Not bad-looking, is she?' The girl who stood by the little white gate of Jallan's was something more than not bad-looking, but in this matter Bill was keeping his superlatives for another. In Bill's eyes she must be judged and condemned by all that distinguished her from Betty Calladine. To Antony, unhampered by these standards of comparison, she seemed, quite simply, beautiful. "'Cayley asked us to bring a letter along,' explained Bill, when the necessary handshakings and introductions were over. "'Here you are.' "'You will tell him, won't you, how dreadfully sorry I am about what has happened. It seems so hopeless to say anything, so hopeless even to believe it.' if it is true what we've heard." Bill repeated the outline of events of yesterday. "'And—yes, and Mr. Ablett hasn't been found yet?' She shook her head in distress. "'It still seems to have happened to somebody else, 
somebody we didn't know at all. But then, with a sudden grave smile which included both of them, "'But you must come and have some tea.' "'It's awfully decent of you,' said Bill awkwardly. "'But we—er—you uh, will, won't you?' she said to Antony. "'Thank you very much.' Mrs. Norbury was delighted to see them, as she always was to see any man in her house who came up to the necessary standard of eligibility. When her life-work was completed and summed up in those beautiful words— a marriage has been arranged and will shortly take place between Angela, daughter of the late John Norbury. Then she would utter a graceful nunc dimittis, and depart in peace to a better world, if heaven insisted. But preferably to her new son-in-law's more dignified establishment, for there was no doubt that eligibility meant not only eligibility as a husband. But it was not as eligibles that the visitors from the Red House were received with such eagerness to-day, and even if her special smile for possibles was there, it was instinctive rather than reasoned. All that she wanted at this moment was news—news of Mark. For she was bringing it off at last, and if the engagement columns of the Morning Post were preceded, as in the case of its obituary columns, by a premonitory bulletin— the announcement of yesterday would have cried triumphantly to the world, or to such part of the world as mattered, a marriage has very nearly been arranged by Mrs. Norbury, and will certainly take place between Angela, only daughter of the late John Norbury, and Mark Ablett of the Red House. And coming across it on his way to the sporting page, Bill would have been surprised, for he had thought that if anybody— it was Cayley. To the girl it was neither. She was often amused by her mother's ways, sometimes ashamed of them, sometimes distressed by them. The Mark Ablett affair had seemed to her particularly distressing, for Mark was so obviously in league with her mother against her. Other suitors upon whom her mother had smiled had been embarrassed by that championship, Mark appeared to depend on it as much as on his own attractions. Great though he thought these to be, they went a-wooing together. It was a pleasure to turn to Cayley, that hopeless ineligible. But alas! Cayley had misunderstood her. She could not imagine Cayley in love until she saw it, and tried too late to stop it. That was four days ago. She had not seen him since. And now— here was his letter. She dreaded opening it. It was a relief to feel that at least she had an excuse for not doing so while her guests were in the house. Mrs. Norbury recognized at once that Antony was likely to be the more sympathetic listener, and when tea was over, and Bill and Angela had been dispatched to the garden with the promptness and efficiency of the expert, dear Mr. Gillingham found himself on the sofa beside her, listening to many things which were of even greater interest to him than she could possibly have hoped. "'It is terrible, terrible,' she said, "'and to suggest that dear Mr. Ablett—' Antony made suitable noises. "'You've seen Mr. Ablett for yourself, a kinder, more warm-hearted man.' Antony explained that he had not seen Mr. Ablett. "'Of course, yes, I was forgetting.' 
"'But believe me, Mr. Gillingham, you can trust a woman's intuition in these matters.' Antony said he was sure of this. "'Think of my feelings as a mother!' Antony was thinking of Miss Norbury's feelings as a daughter, and wondering if she guessed that her affairs were now being discussed with a stranger. Yet what could he do? What, indeed, did he want to do except listen, in the hope of learning? Mark engaged, or about to be engaged. Had that any bearing on the events of yesterday? What, for instance, would Mrs. Norbury have thought of Brother Robert, that family skeleton? Was this another reason for wanting Robert out of the way? "'I never liked him. Never!' "'Never liked?' said Antony, bewildered. "'That cousin of his, Mr. Cayley.' "'Oh!' "'I ask you, Mr. Gillingham, am I the sort of woman to trust my little girl to a man who would go about shooting his only brother?' "'I'm sure you wouldn't, Mrs. Norbury.' "'If there has been any shooting done, it has been done by somebody else.' Antony looked at her inquiringly. "'I never liked him,' said Mrs. Norbury firmly. "'Never!' "'However,' thought Antony to himself, "'that didn't quite prove that Cayley was a murderer.' "'How did Miss Norbury get on with him?' he asked cautiously. "'There was nothing in that at all.' said Miss Norbury's mother emphatically. "'Nothing! I would say so to anybody!' "'Oh, I beg your pardon. I never meant—' "'Nothing! I can say that for dear Angela with perfect confidence. Whether he made advances—' She broke off with a shrug of her plump shoulders. Antony waited eagerly. "'Naturally they met. Possibly he might have. I don't know.' "'But my duty as a mother was clear, Mr. Gillingham.' Mr. Gillingham made an encouraging noise. "'I told him quite frankly that—how shall I put it—that he was trespassing—tactfully, of course, but frankly.' "'You mean,' said Antony, trying to speak calmly, "'that you told him that—er—Mr. Uh, Ablett and your daughter—' Mrs. Norbury nodded several times. "'Exactly, Mr. Gillingham. I had my duty as a mother.' "'I am sure, Mrs. Norbury, that nothing would keep you from doing your duty. But it must have been disagreeable, particularly if you weren't quite sure.' "'He was attracted, Mr. Gillingham. Obviously attracted.' "'Who would not be?' said Antony, with a charming smile. "'It must have been something of a shock to him, too.' It was just that which made me so glad that I had spoken. I saw at once that I had not spoken a moment too soon. "'There must have been a certain awkwardness about the next meeting,' suggested Antony. "'Naturally, he has not been here since. No doubt they would have been bound to meet up at the Red House sooner or later.' "'Oh, this was only quite lately?' "'Last week, Mr. Gillingham. I spoke just in time.' "'Ah!' said Antony under his breath. He had been waiting for it. He would have liked now to have gone away, so that he might have thought over the new situation by himself, or perhaps preferably to have changed partners for a little while with Bill. Miss Norbury would hardly be ready to confide in a stranger with the readiness of a mother, but he might have learnt something by listening to her. 
For which of them had she had the greater feeling, Cayley or Mark? Was she really prepared to marry Mark? Did she love him, or the other, or neither? Mrs. Norbury was only a trustworthy witness in regard to her own actions and thoughts. He had learnt all that was necessary of those. And only the daughter now had anything left to tell him. But Mrs. Norbury was still talking. "'Girls are so foolish, Mr. Gellingham,' she was saying. "'It is so fortunate that they have mothers to guide them. It was so obvious to me from the beginning that dear Mr. Ablett was just the husband for my little girl. You never knew him.' Antony said again that he had not seen Mr. Ablett. "'Such a gentleman, so nice-looking in his artistic way, a regular Velasquez, I should say Van Dyke.' Angela would have it that she could never marry a man with a beard, as if that mattered when— She broke off, and Antony finished her sentence for her. "'The Red House is certainly charming,' he said. "'Charming, quite charming. And it's not as if Mr. Ablett's appearance were in any way undistinguished. Quite the contrary. I'm sure you agree with me.' Antony said that he had never had the pleasure of seeing Mr. Ablett. "'Yes!' and quite the centre of the literary and artistic world, so desirable in every way. She gave a deep sigh and communed with herself for a little. Antony was about to snatch the opportunity of leaving, when Mrs. Norbury began again. And then there's the scapegrace brother of his. He was perfectly frank with me, Mr. Gillingham. He would be. He told me of his brother, and I told him that I was quite certain it would make no difference to my daughter's feelings for him. After all, the brother was in Australia. When was this? Yesterday? Antony felt that if Mark had only mentioned it after his brother's announcement of a personal call at the Red House, this perfect frankness had a good deal of wisdom behind it. It couldn't have been yesterday, Mr. Gillingham. Yesterday! She shuddered and shook her head. I thought perhaps he had been down here in the morning. Oh, no! There is such a thing, Mr. Gillingham, as being too devoted a lover. Not in the morning, no. We both agreed that dear Angela—oh, no. No, the day before yesterday, when he happened to drop in about tea-time. It occurred to Antony that Mrs. Norbury had come a long way from her opening statement that Mark and Miss Norbury were practically engaged. She was now admitting that dear Angela was not to be rushed, that dear Angela had, indeed, no heart for the match at all. The day before yesterday, as it happened, dear Angela was out. Not that it mattered. He was driving to Middleston. He hardly had time for a cup of tea, so that even if she had been in— Antony nodded absently. This was something new. Why did Mark go to Middleston the day before yesterday? But, after all, why shouldn't he? A hundred reasons unconnected with the death of Robert might have taken him there. He got up to go. He wanted to be alone, alone at least with Bill. Mrs. Norbury had given him many things to think over, but the great outstanding fact which had emerged was this, that Cayley had reason to hate Mark. Mrs. Norbury had given him that reason. To hate? Well, to be jealous, anyhow. But that was enough. "'You see,' he said to Bill as they walked back, 
We know that Cayley is perjuring himself and risking himself over this business, and that must be for one of two reasons—either to save Mark or to endanger him. That is to say, he is either whole-heartedly for him or whole-heartedly against him. Well, now we know that he is against him, definitely against him. "'But I say, you know,' protested Bill, "'one doesn't necessarily try to ruin one's rival in love.' "'Doesn't one?' said Antony, turning to him with a smile. Bill blushed. "'Well, of course, one never knows, but I mean—' "'You mightn't try to ruin him, Bill, but you wouldn't perjure yourself in order to get him out of a trouble of his own making.' "'Lord, no!' so that of the two alternatives the other is the more likely. They had come to the gate in the last field which divided them from the road, and having gone through it, they turned round and leant against it, resting for a moment, and looking down at the house which they had left. "'Jolly little place, isn't it?' said Bill. "'Very, but rather mysterious. In what way?' "'Well, where's the front door?' "'The front door?' Why, you've just come out of it. But isn't there a drive or a road or anything? Bill laughed. No, that's the beauty of it to some people. And that's why it's so cheap and why the Norburys can afford it, I expect. They're not too well off. But what about luggage and tradesmen and that kind of thing? Oh, there's a cart track, but motor cars can't come up any nearer than the road. He turned round and pointed. Up there. So the weekend millionaire people don't take it. At least they'd have to build a road and a garage and all the rest of it, if they did. "'I see,' said Antony carelessly, and they turned round and continued their walk up the road. But later on he remembered this casual conversation at the gate, and saw the importance of it. End of chapter 15「Antony thought that he knew now. It was Mark's body. From the beginning he had seen this answer coming, and had drawn back from it, for if Mark had been killed it seemed such a cold-blooded killing. Was Cayley equal to it? Bill would have said no, but that was because he had had breakfast with Cayley, and lunch with him, and dinner with him, and ragged him and played games with him. Bill would have said no because Bill wouldn't have killed anybody in cold blood himself, and because he took it for granted that other people behaved pretty much as he did. But Antony had no such illusions. Murders were done. Murder had actually been done here, for there was Robert's dead body. Why not another murder? Had Mark been in the office at all that afternoon? The only evidence, other than Cayley's, which obviously did not count, was Elsie's. 
Elsie was quite certain that she had heard his voice. But then Bill had said that it was a very characteristic voice, an easy voice, therefore, to imitate. If Bill could imitate it so successfully, why not Cayley? But perhaps it had not been such a cold-blooded killing after all. Suppose Cayley had had a quarrel with his cousin that afternoon over the girl whom they were both wooing. Suppose Cayley had killed Mark, either purposely, in a sudden passion, or accidentally, meaning only to knock him down. Suppose that this had happened in the passage, say about two o'clock, either because Cayley had deliberately led him there, or because Mark had casually suggested a visit to it. One could imagine Mark continually gloating over that secret passage. Suppose Cayley there, with the body at his feet, feeling already the rope around his neck, his mind darting this way and that in frantic search for a way of escape, and suppose that suddenly and irrelevantly he remembers that Robert is coming to the house at three o'clock that afternoon. Automatically he looks at his watch. In half an hour's time. He must think of something quickly, quickly. Shall he bury the body in the passage and let it be thought that Mark ran away, frightened at the mere thought of his brother's arrival? But there was the evidence of the breakfast-table. Mark had seemed annoyed at this resurrection of the black sheep, but certainly not frightened. No, that was too thin a story. But suppose Mark had actually seen his brother, and had a quarrel with him. Suppose it could be made to look as if Robert had killed Mark. Antony pictured to himself Cayley in the passage, standing over the dead body of his cousin, and working it out. How could Robert be made to seem the murderer? if Robert were alive to deny it. But suppose Robert were dead, too. He looks at his watch again. Only twenty-five minutes now. Suppose Robert were dead, too. Robert dead in the office, and Mark dead in the passage. How does that help? Madness! But if the bodies were brought together somehow, and Robert's death looked like suicide, was it possible? Madness again. Too difficult. Only twenty minutes now. Too difficult to arrange in twenty minutes. Can't arrange a suicide. Too difficult. Only nineteen minutes. And then, the sudden inspiration. Robert, dead in the office. Mark's body, hidden in the passage. Impossible to make Robert seem the murderer. But how easy to make Mark— Robert dead and Mark missing. Why, it jumped to the eye at once. Mark had killed Robert. Accidentally. Yes, that would be more likely. And then had run away. Sudden panic. He looks at his watch again. Fifteen minutes. But plenty of time now. The thing arranges itself. Was that the solution? Antony wondered. It seemed to fit in with the facts as they knew them. But then, so did that other theory which he had suggested to Bill in the morning. "'Which one?' said Bill. They had come back from Jallan's through the park, and were sitting in the copse above the pond, from which the inspector and his fishermen had now withdrawn. Bill had listened with open mouth to Antony's theory, and save for an occasional, "'By Jove!' had listened in silence. "'Smart man, Cayley,' had been his only comment at the end.
Which other theory? That Mark had killed Robert accidentally, and had gone to Cayley for help, and that Cayley, having hidden him in the passage, locked the office door from the outside and hammered on it. Yes, but you were so dashed mysterious about that. I asked you what the point of it was, and you wouldn't say anything. He thought for a little, and then went on. I suppose you meant that Cayley deliberately betrayed Mark, and tried to make him look like a murderer. I wanted to warn you that we should probably find Mark in the passage, alive or dead. And now you don't think so? Now I think that his dead body is there. Meaning that Cayley went down and killed him afterwards? After you had come, after the police had come? Well, that's what I shrink from, Bill. It's so horribly cold-blooded. Cayley may be capable of it, but I hate to think of it. But dash it all! Your other way is cold-blooded enough. According to you, he goes up to the office and deliberately shoots a man with whom he has no quarrel, whom he hasn't seen for fifteen years. Yes, but to save his own neck. That makes a difference. My theory is that he quarrelled violently with Mark over the girl, and killed him in sudden passion. Anything that happened after that would be self-defence. I don't mean that I excuse it, but that I understand it, and I think that Mark's dead body is in the passage now, and has been there since, say, half-past two yesterday afternoon. And tonight Cayley is going to hide it in the pond. Bill pulled at the moss on the ground beside him, threw away a handful or two, and said slowly, "'You may be right, but it's all guesswork, you know.' Antony laughed. "'Good Lord, of course it is,' he said. "'And tonight we shall know if it's a good guess or a bad one.' Bill brightened up suddenly. "'Tonight,' he said. "'I say, tonight's going to be rather fun. How do we work it?' Antony was silent for a little. "'Of course,' he said at last, "'we ought to inform the police, so that they can come here and watch the pond tonight.' "'Of course,' grinned Bill. "'But I think that perhaps it is a little early to put our theories before them.' "'I think perhaps it is,' said Bill solemnly. Antony looked up at him with a sudden smile. "'Bill, you old bounder!' "'Well, dash it, it's our show. I don't see why we shouldn't get our little bit of fun out of it.' "'Neither do I. All right, then. We'll do without the police to-night.' "'We shall miss them,' said Bill sadly. "'But tis better so.' There were two problems in front of them. First, the problem of getting out of the house without being discovered by Cayley, and secondly, the problem of recovering whatever it was which Cayley dropped into the pond that night. "'Let's look at it from Cayley's point of view,' said Antony. "'He may not know that we're on his track, but he can't help being suspicious of us. He's bound to be suspicious of everybody in the house, and more particularly of us, because we're presumably more intelligent than the others.' He stopped for a moment to light his pipe and Bill took the opportunity of looking more intelligent than Mrs. Stevens. Now, he has got something to hide tonight, and he's going to take good care that we aren't watching him. Well, 
what will he do? See that we are asleep first, before he starts out. Yes. Come and tuck us up and see that we're nice and comfortable. Yes, that's awkward, said Bill. But we could lock our doors, and then he wouldn't know that we weren't there. Have you ever locked your door? Never. No, and you can bet that Cayley knows that. Anyway, he'd bang on it, and you wouldn't answer, and then what would he think? Bill was silent, crushed. "'Then I don't see how we're going to do it,' he said after deep thought. "'He'll obviously come to us just before he starts out, and that doesn't give us time to get to the pond in front of him.' "'Let's put ourselves in his place,' said Antony, puffing slowly at his pipe. He's got the body, or whatever it is, in the passage. He won't come up the stairs carrying it in his arms, and look in at our doors to see if we're awake. He'll have to make sure about us first, and then go down for the body afterwards, so that gives us a little time." "'Yes,' said Bill doubtfully. "'We might just do it, but it'll be a bit of a rush.' "'But wait. When he's gone down to the passage and got the body, what will he do next? Come out again? said Bill helpfully. Yes, but which end? Bill sat up with a start. By Jove! You mean that he will go out at the far end, by the bowling green? Don't you think so? Just imagine him walking across the lawn in full view of the house, at midnight, with a body in his arms. Think of the awful feeling he would have in the back of his neck, wondering if anybody, any restless sleeper, had chosen just that moment to wander to the window and look out into the night. There's still plenty of moonlight, Bill. Is he going to walk across the park in the moonlight, with all those windows staring at him? Not if he can help it. But he can get out by the bowling green, and then come to the pond without ever being in sight of the house at all. You're right. And that will just about give us time. Good. Now what's the next thing?" The next thing is to mark the exact place in the pond where he drops whatever he drops. So that we can fish it out again. If we can see what it is, we shan't want to. The police can have a go at it tomorrow. But if it's something we can't identify from a distance, then we must try and get it out to see whether it's worth telling the police about." "'Yes,' said Bill, wrinkling his forehead. "'Of course, the trouble with water is that one bit of it looks pretty much like the next bit. I don't know if that had occurred to you.' "'It had,' smiled Antony. "'Let's come and have a look at it.' They walked to the edge of the copse, and lay down there in silence, looking at the pond beneath them. "'See anything?' said Antony at last. "'What?' "'The fence on the other side.' "'What about it?' "'Well, it's rather useful, that's all,' said Sherlock Holmes enigmatically, added Bill. A moment later his friend Watson had hurled him into the pond. Antony laughed. "'I love being Sherlocky,' he said. "'It's very unfair of you not to play up with me.' "'Why is that fence useful, my dear Holmes?' said Bill obediently. 
because you can take a bearing on it. You see? Yes, you needn't stop to explain to me what a bearing is. I wasn't going to. But you're lying here. He looked up. Underneath this pine tree. Cayley comes out in the old boat and drops his parcel in. You take a line from here on to the boat, and mark it off on the fence there. Say it's the fifteenth post from the end. Well, then I take a line from my tree. We'll find one for me directly. And it comes on to the twentieth post, say. And where the two lines meet, there shall the eagles be gathered together. Q.E.D. And there, I almost forgot to remark, will the taller eagle, Beverly by name, do his famous diving act, as performed nightly at the Hippodrome. Bill looked at him uneasily. "'I say, really? It's beastly dirty water, you know.' "'I'm afraid so, Bill. So it is written in the Book of Jasher. "'Of course, I knew that one of us would have to, but I hoped—well, it's a warm night.' "'Just the night for a bathe,' agreed Antony, getting up. "'Well, now, let's have a look for my tree.' They walked down to the margin of the pond, and then looked back. Bill's tree stood up and took the evening, tall and unmistakable, fifty feet nearer to heaven than its neighbours. But it had its fellow at the other end of the copse, not quite so tall, perhaps, but equally conspicuous. "'That's where I shall be,' said Antony, pointing to it. "'Now, for the Lord's sake, count your posts accurately.' "'Thanks very much, but I shall do it for my own sake.' said Bill, with feeling. I don't want to spend the whole night diving. Fix on the post in a straight line with you and the splash, and then count backwards to the beginning of the fence. Right, old boy, leave it to me. I can do this on my head. Well, that's how you will have to do the last part of it, said Antony with a smile. He looked at his watch. It was nearly time to change for dinner. They started to walk back to the house together. "'There's one thing which worries me, rather,' said Antony. "'Where does Cayley sleep?' "'Next door to me. Why?' "'Well, it's just possible that he might have another look at you after he's come back from the pond. I don't think he'd bother about it in the ordinary way. But if he is actually passing your door, I think he might glance in. I shan't be there.' I shall be at the bottom of the pond, sucking up mud. Yes. Do you think you could leave something in your bed that looked vaguely like you in the dark? A bolster with a pajama coat round it, and one arm outside the blanket, and a pair of socks or something for the head? You know the kind of thing. I think it would please him to feel that you were still sleeping peacefully. Bill chuckled to himself. Rather, I'm awfully good at that. I'll make him up something really good. But what about you? I'm at the other end of the house. He's hardly likely to bother about me a second time. And I shall be so very fast asleep at his first visit. Still, I may as well to be on the safe side. They went into the house. Cayley was in the hall as they came in. He nodded and took out his watch. Time to change? He said. Just about, said Bill. You didn't forget my letter. I did not. In fact, we had tea there. Ah. He looked away and said carelessly, 
How were they all? They sent all sorts of sympathetic messages to you, and—and and all that sort of thing. Oh, yes. Bill waited for him to say something more, and then, as nothing was coming, he turned round, said, "'Come on, Tony,' and led the way upstairs. "'Got all you want?' he said at the top of the stairs. "'I think so. Come and see me before you go down. Right-o!' Antony shut his bedroom door behind him, and walked over to the window. He pushed open a casement and looked out. His bedroom was just over the door at the back of the house. The side wall of the office, which projected out onto the lawn beyond the rest of the house, was on his left. He could step out onto the top of the door, and from there drop easily to the ground. Getting back would be a little more difficult. There was a convenient water-pipe, which would help. He had just finished his dressing when Bill came in. "'Final instructions?' he asked, sitting down on the bed. "'By the way, how are we to amuse ourselves after dinner? I mean, immediately after dinner?' "'Billiards?' "'Right-o. Anything you like.' "'Don't talk too loud,' said Antony in a lower voice. "'We're more or less over the hall, and Cayley may be there.' He led the way to the window. "'We'll go out this way to-night. Going downstairs is too risky.' It's easy enough. Better put on tennis shoes. Right. I say, in case I don't get another chance alone with you, what do I do when Cayley comes to tuck me up? It's difficult to say. Be as natural as you can. I mean, if he just knocks lightly and looks in, be asleep. Don't overdo the snoring. But if he makes a hell of a noise— You'll have to wake up and rub your eyes, and wonder what on earth he's doing in your room at all. You know the sort of thing. Right. And about the dummy figure. I'll make it up directly we come upstairs and hide it under the bed. Yes. I think we'd better go completely to bed ourselves. We shan't take a moment dressing again, and it will give him time to get safely into the passage. Then come to my room. Right. Are you ready? Yes. They went downstairs together. End of chapter 16「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 17. Mr. Beverly Takes the Water. Cayley seemed very fond of them that night. After dinner was over, he suggested a stroll outside. They walked up and down the gravel in front of the house, saying very little to each other until Bill could stand it no longer. For the last twenty turns he had been slowing down hopefully each time they came to the door, but the hint had always been lost on his companions, and each time another turn had been taken. But in the end he had been firm. "'What about a little billiards?' he said, shaking himself free from the others. 
"'Will you play?' said Antony to Cayley. "'I'll watch you,' he said. And he had watched them, resolutely, until the game, and then another game after that, had been played. They went into the hall and attacked the drinks. "'Well, thank heaven for bed,' said Bill, putting down the glass. "'Are you coming?' "'Yes,' said Antony, and finished his drink. He looked at Cayley. "'I've just got one or two little things to do,' said Cayley. "'I shan't be long following you.' "'Well, good-night, then.' "'Good-night.' "'Good-night,' called Bill from halfway up the stairs. "'Good-night, Tony.' "'Good-night.' Bill looked at his watch. Half-past eleven. Not much chance of anything happening for another hour. He pulled open a drawer and wondered what to wear on their expedition. Grey flannel trousers, flannel shirt and a dark coat. Perhaps a sweater, as they might be lying out in the copse for some time. And, good idea, a towel. He would want it later on. And meanwhile, he could wear it round his waist. Tennis shoes! There, everything was ready. Now then, for the dummy figure. He looked at his watch again before getting into bed. Twelve-fifteen. How long to wait before Cayley came up? He turned out the light, and then, standing by the door in his pyjamas, waited for his eyes to become accustomed to the new darkness. He could only just make out the bed in the corner of the room. Cayley would want more light than that if he were to satisfy himself from the door that the bed was occupied. He pulled the curtains a little way back. That was about right. He could have another look later on, when he had the dummy figure in the bed. How long would it be before Cayley came up? It wasn't that he wanted his friends Beverly and Gillingham to be asleep before he started on his business at the pond. All that he wanted was to be sure that they were safely in their bedrooms. Cayley's business would make no noise, give no sign to attract the most wakeful member of the household, so long as the household was really inside the house. But if he wished to reassure himself about his guests, he would have to wait until they were far enough on their way to sleep not to be disturbed by him as he came up to reassure himself. So it amounted to the same thing, really. He would wait until they were asleep. Until they were asleep. Asleep. With a great effort Bill regained the mastery over his wandering thoughts and came awake again. This would never do. It would be fatal if he went to sleep. If he went to sleep. If he went to sleep. To sleep. And then, in an instant, he was intensely awake. Suppose Cayley never came at all. Suppose Cayley was so unsuspicious that— as soon as they had gone upstairs, he had dived down into the passage and set about his business. Suppose even now he was at the pond dropping into it that secret of his. Good heavens, what fools they had been! How could Antony have taken such a risk? Put yourself in Cayley's place, he had said. But how was it possible? They weren't Cayley. Cayley was at the pond now. They would never know what he had dropped into it. Listen. Somebody at the door. He was asleep. Quite naturally now. Breathe a little more loudly, perhaps. He was asleep. The door was opening. 
he could feel it opening behind him. Good Lord! Suppose Cayley really was a murderer! Why, even now he might be—no, he mustn't think of that. If he thought of that, he would have to turn round. He mustn't turn round. He was asleep, just peacefully asleep. But why didn't the door shut? Where was Cayley now? Just behind him? And in his hand? No, he mustn't think of that. He was asleep. But why didn't the door shut? The door was shutting. There was a sigh from the sleeper in the bed, a sigh of relief which escaped him involuntarily. But it had a very natural sound, a deep breath from a heavy sleeper. He added another one to it to make it seem more natural. The door was shut. Bill counted a hundred slowly and then got up. As quickly and noiselessly as possible he dressed himself in the dark. He put the dummy figure in the bed, arranged the clothes so that just enough, but not too much of it was showing, and stood by the door looking at it. For a casual glance the room was just about light enough. Then very quietly, very slowly he opened the door. All was still. There was no light from beneath the door of Cayley's room. Very quietly. Very carefully he crept along the passage to Antony's room. He opened the door and went in. Antony was still in bed. Bill walked across to wake him up, and then stopped rigid, and his heart thumped against his ribs. There was somebody else in the room. "'All right, Bill?' said a whispering voice, and Antony stepped out from the curtains. Bill gazed at him without saying anything. "'Rather good, isn't it?' said Antony, coming closer and pointing to the bed. "'Come on. The sooner we get out now, the better.' He led the way out of the window, the silent Bill following him. They reached the ground safely and noiselessly, went quickly across the lawn, and so over the fence into the park. It was not until they were out of sight of the house that Bill felt it safe to speak. "'I quite thought it was you in bed,' he said. I hoped you would. I shall be rather disappointed now if Cayley doesn't call again. It's a pity to waste it. He came all right just now? Oh, rather. What about you? Bill explained his feelings picturesquely. There wouldn't have been much point in his killing you, said Antony prosaically, besides being too risky. Oh, said Bill, and then— I had rather hoped that it was his love for me which restrained him. Antony laughed. I doubt it. You didn't turn up your light when you dressed? Good Lord, no. Did you want me to? Antony laughed again and took him by the arm. You're a splendid conspirator, Bill. You and I could take on anything together. The pond was waiting for them, more solemn in the moonlight. The trees which crowned the sloping bank on the far side of it were mysteriously silent. It seemed that they had the world very much to themselves. Almost unconsciously Antony spoke in a whisper. "'There's your tree. There's mine. As long as you don't move, there's no chance of his seeing you. After he's gone, don't come out till I do. He won't be here for a quarter of an hour or so, so don't be impatient.' 
"'Right-o,' whispered Bill. Antony gave him a nod and a smile, and they walked off to their posts. The minutes went by slowly. To Antony, lying hidden in the undergrowth at the foot of his tree, a new problem was presenting itself. Suppose Cayley had to make more than one journey that night. He might come back and find them in the boat. One of them, indeed, in the water. And if they decided to wait in hiding, on the chance of Cayley coming back again, what was the least time they could safely allow? Perhaps it would be better to go round to the front of the house and watch for his return there, the light in his bedroom, before conducting their experiments at the pond. But then they might miss his second visit in this way, if he made a second visit. It was difficult. His eyes were fixed on the boat as he considered these things, and suddenly, as if materialized from nowhere, Cayley was standing by the boat. In his hand was a small brown bag. Cayley put the bag in the bottom of the boat, stepped in, and using an oar as a punt-pole, pushed slowly off. Then, very silently, he rowed towards the middle of the pond. He had stopped. The oars rested on the water. He picked up the bag from between his feet, leant over the nose of the boat, and rested it lightly on the water for a moment. Then he let go. It sank slowly. He waited there, watching, afraid, perhaps, that it might rise again. Antony began to count. And now Cayley was back at his starting place. He tied up the boat, looked carefully round to see that he had left no traces behind him, and then turned to the water again. For a long time, as it seemed to the watchers, he stood there, very big, very silent in the moonlight. At last he seemed satisfied. Whatever his secret was, he had hidden it. And so, with a gentle sigh, as unmistakable to Antony as if he had heard it, Cayley turned away, and vanished again as quietly as he had come. Antony gave him three minutes and stepped out from the trees. He waited there for Bill to join him. Six, whispered Bill. Antony nodded. I'm going round to the front of the house. You get back to your tree and watch, in case Cayley comes again. Your bedroom is the left-hand end one, and Cayley's the end but one? Is that right? Bill nodded. Right. Wait in hiding till I come back. I don't know how long I shall be, but don't be impatient. It will seem longer than it is. He patted Bill on the shoulder, and with a smile and a nod of the head he left him there. What was in the bag? What could Cayley want to hide, other than a key or a revolver? Keys and revolvers sink of themselves. No need to put them in a bag first. What was in the bag? Something which wouldn't sink of itself. Something which needed to be helped with stones before it would hide itself safely in the mud. Well, they would find that out. There was no object in worrying about it now. Bill had a dirty night's work in front of him. But where was the body which Antony had expected so confidently? Or, if there were no body, where was Mark?
More immediately, however, where was Cayley? As quickly as he could, Antony had got to the front of the house and was now lying in the shrubbery which bordered the lawn, waiting for the light to go up in Cayley's window. If it went up in Bill's window, then they were discovered. It would mean that Cayley had glanced into Bill's room, had been suspicious of the dummy figure in the bed, and had turned up the light to make sure. After that, it was war between them. But if it went up in Cayley's room, there was a light. Antony felt a sudden thrill of excitement. It was in Bill's room. War. The light stayed there, shining vividly, for a wind had come up, blowing the moon behind a cloud, and casting a shadow over the rest of the house. Bill had left his curtains undrawn. It was careless of him, the first stupid thing he had done, but— The moon slipped out again, and Antony laughed to himself in the bushes. There was another window beyond Cayley's, and there was no light in it. The declaration of war was postponed. Antony lay there, watching Cayley into bed. After all, it was only polite to return Cayley's own solicitude earlier in the night. Politeness demanded that one should not disport oneself on the pond until one's friends were comfortably tucked up. Meanwhile, Bill was getting tired of waiting. His chief fear was that he might spoil everything by forgetting the number six. It was the sixth post, six. He broke off a twig and divided it into six pieces. These he arranged on the ground in front of him. Six. He looked at the pond, counted up to the sixth post, and murmured, Six, to himself again. Then he looked down at his twigs. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven! Was it seven? Or was that the seventh bit of a twig, an accidental bit, which had been on the ground anyhow? Surely it was six. Had he said six to Antony? If so, Antony would remember, and it was all right. Six. He threw away the seventh twig and collected the other six together. Perhaps they would be safer in his pocket. Six. The height of a tall man. Well, his own height. Six feet. Yes, that was the way to remember it. Feeling a little safer on the point, he began to wonder about the bag, and what Antony would say to it, and the possible depth of the water, and of the mud at the bottom. And was still so wondering, and saying, "'Good Lord, what a life!' to himself, when Antony reappeared. Bill got up and came down the slope to meet him. Six, he said firmly. Sixth post from the end. "'Good,' smiled Antony. Mine was the eighteenth, a little way past it. "'What did you go off for?' "'To see Cayley into bed. "'Is it all right?' "'Yes. Better hang your coat over the sixth post, and then we shall see it more easily. I'll put mine on the eighteenth. Are you going to undress here or in the boat?' "'Some here and some in the boat. You're quite sure that you wouldn't like to do the diving yourself?' "'Quite, thanks.' They had walked round to the other side of the pond. Coming to the sixth post of the fence, Bill took off his coat and put it in position, and then finished his undressing, while Antony went off to mark the eighteenth post. 
When they were ready, they got into the boat, Antony taking the oars. "'Now, Bill, tell me as soon as I'm in a line with your two marks.' He rowed slowly toward the middle of the pond. "'You're about there now,' said Bill at last. Antony stopped rowing and looked about him. "'Yes, that's pretty well right.' He turned the boat's nose round until it was pointing to the pine-tree under which Bill had lain. "'You see my tree in the other coat?' "'Yes,' said Bill. "'Right. Now, then, I'm going to row gently along this line until we're dead in between the two. Get it as exact as you can, for your own sake.' "'Steady,' said Bill warningly. "'Back a little. A little more. A little more forward again. Right.' Antony left the oars on the water and looked round. As far as he could tell, they were in an exact line with each pair of landmarks. "'Now then, Bill, in you go.' Bill pulled off his shirt and trousers and stood up. "'You mustn't dive from the boat, old boy,' said Antony hastily. "'You'll shift its position. Slide in gently.' Bill slid in from the stern and swam slowly round to Antony. "'What's it like?' said Antony. Cold. Well, here's luck to it. He gave a sudden kick, flashed for a moment in the water, and was gone. Antony steadied the boat. Antony steadied the boat and took another look at his landmarks. Bill came up behind him with a loud explosion. It's pretty muddy, he protested. Weeds? No, thank the Lord. Well, try again. Bill gave another kick and disappeared. Again Antony coaxed the boat back into position, and again Bill popped up, this time in front of him. "'I feel that if I threw you a sardine,' said Antony with a smile, "'you'd catch it in your mouth quite easily.' "'It's awfully easy to be funny from where you are. How much longer have I got to go on doing this?' Antony looked at his watch. "'About three hours. We must get back before daylight.' but be quicker if you can, because it's rather cold for me sitting here." Bill flicked a handful of water at him and disappeared again. He was under for almost a minute this time, and there was a grin on his face when it was visible again. "'I've got it, but it's devilish hard to get up. I'm not sure that it isn't too heavy for me.' "'That's all right,' said Antony. He brought out a ball of thick string from his pocket. Get this through the handle if you can, and then we can both pull. Good man! He paddled to the side, took one end of the string, and paddled back again. Now then! Two minutes later the bag was safely in the boat. Bill clambered in after it, and Antony rowed back. Well done, Watson, he said quietly as they landed. He fetched their two coats, and then waited, the bag in his hand, while Bill dried and dressed himself. As soon as the ladder was ready, he took his arm and led him into the copse. He put the bag down and felt in his pockets. "'I shall light a pipe before I open it,' he said. "'What about you?' "'Yes.' They sat down, and taking the bag between his knees, Antony pressed the catch and opened it. "'Close?' said Bill. Antony pulled out the top garment and shook it out. It was a wet brown flannel coat. "'Do you recognize it?' he asked. "'Mark's brown flannel suit.' 
the one he has advertised as having run away in? Yes, it looks like it. Of course, he had a dashed lot of clothes. Antony put his hand in the breast pocket and took out some letters. He considered them doubtfully for a moment. I suppose I'd better read them, he said. I mean, just to see. He looked inquiringly at Bill, who nodded. Antony turned on his torch and glanced at them. Bill waited anxiously. Yes, Mark. Hullo! What is it? The letter that Cayley was telling the inspector about, from Robert. Mark, your loving brother is coming to see you. Yes, I suppose I had better keep this. Well, that's his coat. Let's have out the rest of it. He took the remaining clothes from the bag and spread them out. "'They're all here,' said Bill. "'Shirt, tie, socks, underclothes, shoes. Yes, all of them.' "'All that he was wearing yesterday?' "'Yes.' "'What do you make of it?' Bill shook his head and asked another question. "'Is it what you expected?' Antony laughed suddenly. "'It's too absurd,' he said. I expected—well, you know what I expected—a body, a body in a suit of clothes. Well, perhaps it would be safer to hide them separately. The body here, and the clothes in the passage, where they would never betray themselves. And now he takes a great deal of trouble to hide the clothes here, and doesn't bother about the body at all. He shook his head. I'm a bit lost for the moment, Bill. And that's the fact. Anything else there? Antony felt in the bag. Stones and—yes, there's something else. He took it out and held it up. There we are, Bill. It was the office key. By Jove, you were right. Antony felt in the bag again, and then turned it gently upside down on the grass. A dozen large stones fell out. And something else. He flashed down his torch. "'Another key,' he said. He put the two keys in his pocket, and sat there for a long time in silence, thinking. Bill was silent, too, not liking to interrupt his thoughts. But at last he said, "'Shall I put these things back, Tony?' Antony looked up with a start. "'What?' "'Oh, yes. No, I'll put them back. You give me a light, will you?' Very slowly and carefully he put the clothes back in the bag, pausing as he took up each garment, in the certainty, as it seemed to Bill, that it had something to tell him, if only he could read it. When the last of them was inside, he still waited there on his knees, thinking. "'That's the lot,' said Bill. Antony nodded at him. "'Yes, that's the lot,' he said. "'And that's the funny thing about it. You're sure it is the lot? What do you mean? Give me the torch a moment. He took it and flashed it over the ground between them. Yes, that's the lot. It's funny. He stood up, the bag in his hands. Now, let's find a hiding place for these, and then— He said no more, but stepped off through the trees, Bill following him meekly. As soon as they had got the bag off their hands and were clear of the cops, Antony became more communicative. 
he took the two keys out of his pocket. One of them is the office key, I suppose, and the other is the key of the passage cupboard. So I thought that perhaps we might have a look at the cupboard. I say, do you really think it is? Well, I don't see what else it can be. But why should he want to throw it away? Because it has now done its work, whatever it was, and he wants to wash his hands of the passage. He'd throw the passage away if he could. I don't think it matters much one way or the other, and I don't suppose there's anything to find in the cupboard. But I feel that we must look. Do you still think Mark's body might be there? No. And yet, where else can it be? Unless I'm hopelessly wrong, and Cayley never killed him at all. Bill hesitated, wondering if he dare advance his theory. I know you'll think me an ass. My dear Bill, I'm such an obvious ass myself that I should be delighted to think you are too. Well, then, suppose Mark did kill Robert, and Cayley helped him to escape, just as we thought at first. I know you proved afterwards that it was impossible, but suppose it happened in a way we don't know about, and for reasons we don't know about. I mean, there are such a lot of funny things about the whole show that—well, almost anything might have happened. You're quite right. Well? Well, then, this clothes business, doesn't that seem rather to bear out the escaping theory? Mark's brown suit was known to the police. Couldn't Cayley have brought him another one in the passage, to escape in, and then have had the brown one on his hands, and thought it safest to hide it in the pond? "'Yes,' said Antony thoughtfully, and then, "'Go on.' Bill went on eagerly. "'It all seems to fit in, you know. I mean, even with your first theory, that Mark killed him accidentally and then came to Cayley for help. Of course, if Cayley had played fair, he'd have told Mark that he had nothing to be afraid of. But he isn't playing fair. He wants to get Mark out of the way because of the girl. Well, this is his chance.' He makes Mark as frightened as possible, and tells him that his only hope is to run away. Well, naturally, he does all he can to get him well away, because if Mark is caught, the whole story of Cayley's treachery comes out. Yes, but isn't it overdoing it, rather, to make him change his underclothes and everything? It wastes a good deal of time, you know. Bill was pulled up short and said, Oh! in great disappointment. "'No, it's not as bad as that, Bill,' said Antony with a smile. "'I dare say the underclothes could be explained. "'But here's the difficulty. "'Why did Mark need to change from brown to blue, or whatever it was, "'when Cayley was the only person who saw him in brown?' "'The police description of him says that he is in a brown suit.' "'Yes, because Cayley told the police. "'You see, even if Mark had had lunch in his brown suit—' and the servants had noticed it, Cayley could always have pretended that he had changed into blue after lunch, because only Cayley saw him afterwards. So if Cayley had told the inspector that he was wearing blue, Mark could have escaped quite comfortably in his brown without needing to change at all. "'But that's just what he did do!' cried Bill triumphantly. "'What fools we are!' Antony looked at him in surprise, and then shook his head. "'Yes, yes!' insisted Bill. 
"'Of course, don't you see? Mark did change after lunch, and to give him more of a chance of getting away, Cayley lied and said that he was wearing the brown suit in which the servants had seen him. Well, then he was afraid that the police might examine Mark's clothes and find the brown suit still there, so he hid it, and then dropped it in the pond afterwards.' He turned eagerly to his friend, but Antony said nothing. Bill began to speak again, and was promptly waved into silence. "'Don't say anything more, old boy. You've given me quite enough to think about. Don't let's bother about it tonight. We'll just have a look at this cupboard and then get to bed.' But the cupboard had not much to tell them that night. It was empty, save for a few old bottles. "'Well, that's that.' said Bill. But Antony, on his knees with the torch in his hand, continued to search for something else. "'What are you looking for?' asked Bill at last. "'Something that isn't there,' said Antony, getting up and dusting his trousers. And he locked the door again. End of chapter 17「Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.